Father in heaven, uh, Lord, you do not ignore us. Uh, Lord, we have asked questions of you this week. We continue to ask questions of you this week and wonder uh, if you're really there, if you really speak, if you really have something to say that has anything to do with our life. And uh, so, Lord, I I pray uh, that you would comfort our doubts, that you love us enough uh, to communicate with us, and you uh, are alive and well through your Holy Spirit. Uh, So, Lord, would you uh, take this, your word, and apply it to our our hearts in specific ways uh, that have to do with what we're dealing with in the here and now. Uh, So, Lord, do this this work. Uh, We hear you gladly. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We've not been in Judges for a while, uh, but we're back. Uh, And if you've not been with us uh, for a while, we are in this... uh, somewhat obscure book in the Old Testament called Judges. Uh, A judge uh, in the Old Testament is not someone uh, who wears a a big uh, black robe and makes decisions on legal matters. A judge is kind of a cross uh, between a legal judge in the Old Testament and or or a legal judge that we think of and um, and a king. Uh, It's usually kind of a military leader, too. So you've kind of got all these roles wrapped into one, and that's a judge in the book of Judges. And there are these cycles that happen over and over and over again uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, They're they're going to get longer and longer. We looked at Gideon in chapter 6. We're looking at Gideon tonight in chapter 7. We'll look at Gideon again uh, in chapter 8. So uh, we've got three, three... chapters on Gideon where Deborah didn't even get, uh, didn't even get a whole chapter. Uh, she, was, she, was, she was in there with two other folks. So uh, that's the way Judges is going to go. We're going to hit uh, Gideon, then we'll hit some other people that get uh, big chunks too. Um, but the cycle is the same. No matter how short or how long uh, the, the character the judge gets, it starts with uh, the nation of Israel rebels against God. Uh, God uh, gives them retribution for their rebellion. The people repent. And God sends them a rescuer. So you have these four R's that happen over and over and over again. And that's where we are with Gideon tonight. And uh, you've probably not heard, you, maybe you've read this story, but it was in a Bible study, maybe it was in uh, your daily reading, uh, but you likely have not heard a sermon on it. Uh, I, I, I dug uh, high and low on the World Wide Web and could not find a sermon on Judges chapter 7. Uh, so I, I, maybe you haven't heard this before, and that's okay, and maybe it'll take a year, but uh, maybe uh, you're asking, what, is, what does this archaic stuff have to do with me? Well, a lot, actually. Uh, Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, was walking on the road to, to Emmaus. It's about six miles from Jerusalem where he, uh, was, where, he, where he died on a cross, where he rose again from the grave. And two of his followers were walking uh, six miles down the road to another town called Emmaus. Uh, Jesus, who's resurrected, comes to them. They don't recognize who he is. And Jesus shows him who he is by using the Old Testament scripture scriptures, by the law and the prophets and the writings, he shows them who he is. In other words, he used all of the Old Testament to talk to them about himself. Uh, so if Jesus did that to talk to these two guys on the road to Mass, then he can do it for us too. And that's what we're asking him to do in the series on Judges. And But when you're in Judges, uh, we looked at uh, how, how big of a fool Gideon was in chapter 6. You'll see him being a fool again in chapter 7, and you'll see him being a fool even more in chapter 8. Um, and this is right along with what the Bible does. The Bible just does seem to champion small things, uh, unheard of places, and insignificant people. Think about Jesus. Uh, Jesus takes up a child in a context where children were disposable. And he says, if you want to be with me, you've got to become like one of these children. 
Jesus uh, gives us a list of values for his kingdom that we call the Beatitudes. And the lead value there is to be poor. Jesus uh, was born on the backside of nowhere in a town called Bethlehem. And then he grew up in another place that nobody ever heard of called Nazareth. Then Jesus builds a team of leaders around him for his public ministry. And he chooses a bunch of nobodies. This sounds strange, doesn't it? And it should confound us. But to put it in our terms, uh, Jesus uh, would be from Nicholasville, uh, was raised in Winchester. His closest associates would be blue collar. And he'd go around telling Lexington's elite to take on the inner disposition of the most marginalized in our society. That's Jesus. So when we stumble over the characters we find in Judges, we should see them falling right in line with what we've seen in Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. So that's what we find in Judges chapter 7. So let's read it together. Uh, If you brought your spectacles, you might need them uh, for this font 4. But it's either that or give you a book for a bulletin. Um, So I hope your eyes work tonight. So let's let's roll here. Uh, Then Jerubbabel... That is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. A little Let me give you a little foreshadowing. Verse 2 is the key verse here. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, 
a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Gideon and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had set, just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out, uh, A sword for the Lord. An army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against their comrade, against his comrade and against all the army. An army fled as far as Beshadah toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abal Meola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the, the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the, the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. The word of the Lord. Wow. Uh, but you really did need to hear all that to know the story. Uh, that's why I read it. But if you weren't with us for Judges chapter 6, here's where we left things off. Uh, Israel has gone through this cycle. They have rebelled against the Lord. The Lord has given them a foreign oppressor as retribution for their rebellion. And that oppressor is the Midianites. And Midianites, they were oppressing them economically. They came down. They would steal all of God's people's crops and take them back. And so that they were, they were held in bondage, that they were starving to death, literally. And as they were starving to death, they, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sends them this Un, most unlikely of all uh, 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 rescuers. His name is Gideon. God calls Gideon. He says, I assure you, you're going to win this one. You're a great warrior. And Gideon still asks, God, are you really going to do this? I mean, I know you've told me 17 times that you're going to rescue, rescue us from the Midianites, but are you really going to do it? And so just like we saw, if you were with us, uh, Gideon, he tests God twice, and God answers his signs so he's trying to assure him over and over and over again. So when we get to the end of chapter 6, they're still in bondage. <laughs> they're still being oppressed by Midian. And so we see Gideon, and he's not some combination of General Patton and Chuck Norris and Dwayne the Rock Johnson, all balled up into one. 
He's not the model biblical leader. He's an absolute mess. And he's a leader who displays his doubt, he displays his immaturity, and he displays all kinds of weakness. So here we have it. The narrative is about ready to show us uh, Gideon leading his people into battle. There's really three scenes that we just read. The first one, uh, I'm going to call the necessity of weakness. We see it in verses 1 to 8. Then we see our reassurance in weakness in 9 uh, 9 to 18. And then 19 to the end of the chapter, we see the strength of weakness. So we see necessity of weakness, reassurance in weakness, and the strength of weakness. So the necessity of weakness. um, You see it that Gideon starts with a large number of, of soldiers, doesn't he? Of his troops. He has 32,000 of them. And then God tells him to do something that no military handbook in the history of the world has ever said. You have too many people. That's never been said before. Too many? I, I bet you, Gideon saying, are you kidding me? Uh, the army that they're about to, the, about to face in verse 12, that they're as abundant as locusts down there. Uh, they have more camels than, uh, th- th- than I can count sand, uh, grains of sand on the seashore. <laughs> they have a ton of people. Yeah, we got 32,000, but I could use even more than that. But God calls Gideon to make two cuts to that, doesn't he? The first cut, uh, he says, he, he just makes it voluntary. He says, Gideon, I want you to tell these 32,000 troops, uh, hey, which of you are scared? If, if you have the courage to say you're scared, you're free to go. Well, 22,000 people have the courage to raise their hand and say, I'm scared. And they left. So Gideon's army just got cut by two-thirds. God comes to them and says something that I I bet you Gideon was pretty close to giving God the middle finger on. And he says, "Uh, you still have way too many people. Gideon's got to be saying, really? Uh, You just took two-thirds of my people away. God says, all right, I'm going to give you a test. You're going to go down there. Those who lap water, you're going to keep. Those who kneel down to drink water, uh, you're going to toss away. You saw what happened. He went from 10,000 to 300. So he has less than 1% of his original army to face his enemy, who has more camels than grains of sand on the seashore, and they're as abundant as locusts down there in the valley. Why would God do that? It seems like God is, betray- is now betraying his people. It seems like God is now team Midian. It seems like he's pro-Midian. But that's just not the case. See, God's ways for his people, they're not malicious here. Rather, God is protecting Gideon, his chosen leader, and he's protecting Israel, his chosen people, from the greatest of all dangers. The danger of thinking that they have obtained salvation on their own. Look at verse 2. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See, God is insisting on the necessity of weakness in order to squash this pesky enemy of pride from existing within his people. See, God knew that if they defeated the Midianites with 32,000 or with 10,000, that they could glorify their efforts, that they could trust in their methods. 
So God is insisting on their helplessness. So they, they've got to recognize that their deliverance in the end is only, going to be good, is only going to be chalked up to God's mercy, to his power. And when they see that it's only because of God that they won, what are they going to get to do? They're going to get not to boast in themselves, but to glorify God. So here's the lesson for me and for you. We need to see that the victory comes from God's gracious action not by earning it with our actions. We need to see that we are the supporting actor in God's story, where he is the hero. Not where God is the supporting actor in our story, where we are the hero. This lesson, this necessity of weakness... Uh, it's been a really important one for me, especially in terms of this church plant. Um, I've told the stories many times that almost every, if you've been to Welcome Dinner, if you've been to Foundations, you've heard me tell at least some version of this story. But it's so fitting for today that I'm going to tell it again. Um, uh, my first ministry position uh, was with a parachurch ministry called Young Life. I'd been to seminary, been in seminary, was felt like forever. Uh, I was in school for almost nine years out of high school. And uh, I get done, and um, I wear T-shirts and jeans and uh, tennis shoes on campus with Young Life, and I loved it. I uh, worked with college students, and um, it was super, super rewarding uh, for me and for Jenna. And uh, while we were doing that with Young Life, that was for five years, we were also members of this church, just normal people. I never stood on stage, uh, just helped out in the nursery. I had a seminary degree, but I tried to keep that a secret. And... Um, we were just normal people in the church. But by the fifth year, uh, things on campus, we had gained some momentum. I, I begin to think maybe I don't know nothing about this. I know a little something about this. And at that five-year mark, not only had we gained momentum but uh, on campus, but Robert had become senior pastor at our church. Robert had been the youth pastor before that, so this transition had occurred. And uh, he, he came to me shortly after his transition as senior minister. And he said, hey, what do you think about being an assistant pastor around here? I was like, man, I don't know. I like wearing T-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes and running around UK's campus. And uh, he said, hey, I really want you to think about this. I said, all right. So I went to two, two guys in town I trusted a ton and said, hey, what, 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 I've been presented this opportunity. What do you think? Uh, and one of the guys asked me a question I did not want to be asked. He said, Marsh, what do you think God wants you to do in 10 years? And I was like, dadgummit. This is the question that I get to ask college students, not what you get to ask me. I hated it. I wasn't thinking about the future because I was so engrossed in my work every day. So I went away and uh, prayed, talked a ton with Jenna. And he had given me two caveats on the way out the door. He said, hey, I, I, I want, don't be afraid of whatever you tell me that I'm going to think you're prideful. I'm not. So tell me whatever it is, whatever you think God's called you to do in 10 years, you can tell me. I'm not going to think you're arrogant. I said, okay. Uh, and he said, the other thing is, um, I, uh, I, I'm not going to hold you accountable for whatever this is, because in the end, God's in charge. And I was like, man, thank God. <laughs> so um, I went away, and I thought, man, 10 years. What, what, this was in 2013. I mean, what, what would I, what, what I think God's called me to do? And I came back into his office, and I said, um, hey, I, I think... I think maybe, I don't know what the church thinks about this, but what I, I would love to plant a church downtown through TCPC. 
That's what I'd like to do in 10 years. I thought it would be a 2023-ish. Um, I could potentially, just maybe, uh, possibly plant a church downtown. But you guys know our first service wasn't 2023-ish. Uh, our first service was August 2015. Uh, so less than two years after going into his office, uh, this became a reality. Uh, this led to very many sleepless nights for me because I said, hey, I, this was my 10-year hope, not my 18-month hope. I need more time. But you know why God did that, don't you? You know. It makes me give him credit because I, 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 for not having what I consider to be the proper type or the proper amount of experience to be doing what I get to do. I can just say I'm a bumbling idiot. He says, exactly. The other thing that's helped me, uh, helped me lead in weakness being here downtown is in my preaching. Um, I'd done a good bit of speaking on campus, but again, it was in tennis shoes and T-shirts and jeans. And uh, it was just college students. Um, I'd done some speaking through seminary. But all I got thrown out the door uh, when I began to preach in tandem with Robert. Um, Appreciate Rapid Run was fine the couple years I was an assistant there because I didn't do it very often. Uh, but it was really hard when I began to do it on a consistent basis and now the majority of the time basis alongside Robert. Um, see, Robert's uh, shadow cast over me in such a way I feel deeply, deeply inadequate. It has absolutely nothing to do with Robert. He's not casting it on me intentionally. He's my biggest encourager. But it's something that's ingrained in my psyche. So why would God let me endure this kind of interior anguish? It's to keep me weak. Because in God's economy, it's better to be weak than to be prideful. So what do you feel deeply inadequate about? What makes you insecure? What is it that you beg God to change, but for some reason it remains in the orbit of your life? See, friends, God's not trying to hold you or hold me down. He's not trying to punish us. What he's trying to do is to keep us humble so that when victory comes, we praise him in the victory and not for our own strength. See, he made us for praise. But we can't praise him if we think we're the one who accomplished everything. See, God didn't create us so that we move from victory to victory. He created us so that we move from worship to worship. So if you're going to have victory and you're going to have worship, you've got to have a third ingredient. You know what it is. It's weakness. So it's necessary that in the Christian life that we live a life of weakness. 32,000 to 300. Now in our story, God does something uh, that slows things up a, a bit in the narrative. You would think, okay, he's got this thing whittled down to 300. Uh, we're about ready to see a battle scene when you get to verse 9, but that's not what happens. It's like God calls a timeout because he knows that Gideon's still shaking in his boots. Uh, did you see it there, how he talks about Pura? He said, hey, Gideon, I want you to go down. I want you to scout out the camp. Uh, but when you go down and scout out the camp, um, if you're afraid, you can take Pura. 
<laughs> so he takes his servant Pura, which is an open admission of Gideon's fear. And it's obvious sign to us as the, as the reader that we're dealing with a spineless, yellow bellied, scaredy cat leader. And when they go down, they scout out the camp. Gideon receives assurance from the oddest of sources. Did you catch it when we were reading the narrative? He gets assurance from a Midianite private. It's so ironic. Because the private starts speaking about the dream that he's had to his comrade, to his fellow private. And the other comrade, the other private, he interprets it in verse 14. You see what he says? Verse 14, he says, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon, he could have stumbled on any tent, but he stumbled on this one. <laughs> he stumbled on the one which had a man who'd had a dream foretelling Gideon's looming victory. Can you imagine sitting there as Pura? <laughs> That Gideon says, hey, I want you to go down and scout out a camp. He's like, are you serious? Like, me and you were going to go down this really powerful army. Gideon says, yep, sure are. And they go down there, and you're sitting there, and you watch Gideon's eye. As Pura, you're watching Gideon's eyes as he hears this dream. And then you watch Gideon fall to his knees in verse 15 and worship God. So doubt has been met with assurance over and over and over again. For Gideon. See, God's not so strict that he's been harsh with Gideon for his doubts. He's not. He doesn't ridicule him for his fear. He doesn't mock Gideon for being fragile. He just reassures him. See, God is exceedingly patient with Gideon and his weakness, and he's patient with you and your weakness too. I think sometimes we dupe ourselves. We dupe ourselves into thinking that being a real Christian leader is being someone who's dynamic, who's assured, who's confident, who's brash, who's fearless, who's witty, who's adventuresome, and who's glamorous. But this just is not true. We see it in Gideon, and we see it over and over and over in the book of Judges and throughout the scriptures that God uses leaders who are obviously foolish so that we will know that he is a God of grace. So we see that he's reassured in his weakness. And lastly, verses 19 to 25, we hit the climax of chapter 7. We see that there's actually strength in weakness. And the battle's not what you expect. Um, Gideon leaves the Midianite camp. He goes back up the hill. He gathers his, uh, his little band of brothers of 300 he cuts them into three groups of 100 each. And he gives them three things that you and I could find in your garage. Um, maybe not a horn, unless you were in band in high school. But he gives them a horn, he gives them a torch, and he gives them a jar. <laughs> Those were their weapons. No bows and arrows, no spears, no swords, just a horn, a torch, and a jar. All they've got to be able to do is blow a horn, break a jar, Stand and yell real loud for the Lord and for Gideon. That's all they need to do. They, there's no intense training attached here. There's no elite skill. These 300 soldiers are nothing like the 300 Spartans, if you've seen the movie 300. They're just a small band of soldiers with no weapons who defeat a massive army who have endless resources. What we read here is a miracle. So not only do they not have any weapons... 
uh, they all, the Midianites, if you read, they killed each other. Do you see that in verse 22? The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So these 300 soldiers, they don't even fight. Because most of the deaths that happened to the Midianites happened because they kill each other. And the ones that were left over, the 31,700 who got cut, uh, they storm in and they kill the rest. So the 300 are like, uh, we were the loyal ones here. We were the chosen ones. And literally, we did almost nothing. So I bet that if uh, you got to, if we were to do a podcast series and we had Gideon, we chose a half dozen or dozen of these soldiers and we began a podcast episode, I bet you they, they would tell a different version of the same story over and over again. I think we would hear them say something like this. This victory was God's, not mine. My only part was to trust and obey him. The glory is his. The privilege was mine. So at the end of the day, God what he wanted. He got exactly what he wanted. He got a people who would praise him. And he got it because he worked not in spite of their weakness, but because of it. This is a major theme we see in the life of Jesus. Because with Jesus, he became voluntarily weak. He stepped out of heaven to take upon himself a body, to live as a servant, to empty himself out into death, death of the most excruciating of kinds. See, it was Jesus' body, it was his limitation that opened up for him the opportunity to be the gate for all of us who would enter through him back into the Garden of Eden to be with our Creator. You see what I'm saying here? Jesus' body, his limitation, his weakness that he had never had before, before the incarnation, is now the very thing that qualifies him to bring salvation to all people. So his greatest strength was his greatest weakness. And if our Savior was voluntarily weak so that we might benefit from it, why are we so surprised that Jesus calls us to live a life that's voluntarily weak for the good of others. So if you're a victim of abuse, you know what your greatest asset is in ministry. You know what it is, don't you? It's to help others who've been abused. If you've got mental illness, you know what your greatest asset for ministry is? Helping those with mental illness. Uh, if you've been in a marriage uh, and you've experienced some degree of redemption, you know who needs you most, don't you? Couples in crisis. See, you get the point. But what if you've not even started this journey of weakness? What if you're just kind of coming to terms with, oh yeah, I was abused. Oh yeah, uh, I, I have experience some degree of redemption in my marriage. Oh yeah, I, I, I do have mental illness. What does it look like to even start? Well, look at Gideon. In chapter 6, and it bleeds into chapter 7, he seems uh, like a man of totally different stature. He's, he, he's making excuses over and over and over again. And then in verse 15, in chapter 7, things change. Everything changed when he was at the tent and he overheard the dream. All of a sudden, Gideon was charged with boldness 
but he still went back to an army of only 300. What happened there? I think it finally connected for Gideon. He finally heard the Lord really say in the depths of his heart, I've got you, Gideon. I really do. And when you and I existentially hear that personally in our hearts, everything changes for us. See, Gideon is just like every child, every adult, and every leader. He's just like you. You long to be watched, then praised. You long to be known, then loved. You long to be exposed and then not rejected. You have a longing to be approved, to be favored. You have a longing to be secure. And this security doesn't come in your gifting. It doesn't come in your performance. It doesn't come in your beauty. It doesn't come in your money. It comes in the gospel. Where Jesus does not chide you for your weakness, for your insecurity, for your opposition, or for suffering. But he also doesn't remove them. Instead, they become the tool that God uses to bring forth his kingdom into this world. Let's pray together. Father, will you forgive us? Um, will you forgive us that we want to live lives of strength, live lives without suffering, live lives where we can hide our weaknesses, where we can hide our shame instead of bringing them into the light? Lord, I pray that you uh, would convince us even further that being just 300 is okay. Lord, would you, would you speak this, this word into our hearts that you've got us, even in our weakness. In Christ's name, amen.